Welcome to the Complexity Premier Podcast. I'm your co-host, Yingyi An Cheng, Portfolio Management Director at Coolabar Capital. And Yingyi's is joined, as always, by Chris Joy. Uh, I'm a Portfolio Manager, also at Coolabar Capital. Okay, Yingers, this is going to be an exciting podcast. We have uh, quite a lot of territory to cover, including the performance of different asset classes in February. We'll dive into a fairly detailed exposition of our big macro ideas right now. And I think we'll conclude with some thoughts on the besieged RBA. So kicking off uh, Yingers in February, all of Coolabar strategies generated substantial alpha or outperformance, as has been the case for the last six to nine months. So our outperformance has been driven by a diverse range of factors, including mispriced global bank bond issues that have come with large new issue concessions in Aussie dollars, US dollars, and euros. And over the last four months, we've invested more than $2.1 billion into new primary market bond issues. And we've been really focused on finding cheap senior ranking and tier two bond issues from banks in Aussie dollars, US dollars, and euros. We've also tapped into a few insurer issues from the likes of Suncorp. And we've allocated capital to cheap sovereign bond issues that have offered demonstrable new issue concessions. We believe this will remain an ongoing source of alpha as issuance requirements are quite high amongst both banks and sovereigns across the globe. A second driver has been uh, very active secondary market trading. Over the past four months, we've executed a total of about $12.5 billion of cash bond trades in global secondary markets. This has involved taking profits on existing positions and switching from lower yielding and or comparatively more expensive assets into secondary opportunities with larger mispricings across the high grade and liquid credit spectrum. A final driver of our returns has been a further improvement in our underlying cash yields. Central banks continue to lift cash rates and expected terminal or final landing cash rates have drifted higher. The US Federal Reserve is projected by bond markets to now increase its Fed funds rate to almost 5.5%. The RBA's expected terminal rate has recently risen from 3.5% to 4.2%. In the United States, the 10-year government bond yield has jumped from 3.5% at the start of February to finish the month at around 4%. Over the same period, the Aussie 10-year government bond yield rose from 3.55% to 3.79%. Higher cash rates and long-term yields are enhancing the yields on our portfolios. And Chris, in February, the floating rate bond benchmark in Australia called the Osborne Floating Rate Note Index, or FRN Index, returned a solid 0.43%. In contrast, the fixed rate bond benchmark called the Osborne Composite Bond Index lost 1.32% as long-term bond yields crept higher. Aussie shares also lost 2.38% in the month. As an aside, Bitcoin has once again slumped after climbing to almost $25,000. It has plunged to $22,000 on the back of a US bank, Silvergate, potentially toppling over as a result of its exposures to collapsing crypto. Coolabar's RBA cash plus 1.5% strategy, smarter money, higher income, which is floating rate and holds on average A-plus rated bonds, returned 0.65% in February after fees outperforming the FRN index as it has done over the last three and six months and since inception. This Smart Money Higher Income Fund has a current annual yield of 5.3% per annum. The geared version of this strategy, Coolabar's Long Short Credit Fund, returned a much higher 2.1% after fees in February. The Long Short Fund has returned 4.7% net over the last three months, 8% net since October and about 1% net over the last year. It has a current annual yield of about 8.5% per annum and an average AA- credit rating. Coolabar's new floating rate high yield fund has also outperformed, 
returning 1.6% after fees in February and 3.6% since its launch in mid-December. Its current annual yield is 9.4% per annum and it has an average credit rating of A-. Our one long duration solution called the Bar Active Composite Bond Strategy returns 0.8% above the Composite Bond Index after fees in February and has beaten the index by 1.96% in the last three months net of fees and by 1.31% in the last six months and 0.16% in the last year. Please note, as always, that past performance is no guide to future returns and investors should seek financial advice before considering any strategy and carefully read the PDS to better understand the risk. The thematic here is cash and high-grade floating rate bonds outperforming everything, as has been the case since late 2021 when the inflation shock really became entrenched. Indeed, Yingers. Turning now to Aussie housing, it took a temporary breather in February, with national capital city prices only falling 0.1%, helped along by a modest bounce in Sydney prices, which actually rose slightly by 0.3%. Our analysis suggests, however, that this move sideways in national prices is a function of typical seasonality that emerges in the February to April period when house prices tend to lift materially. And in the final week of February and in early March, we've actually seen both Sydney and national house prices start to decline somewhat more quickly again. With one in four fixed rate Aussie home loans switching from fixed to flooding this year, which means their interest rates will jump from circa 2% to 6%, the RBA expected to impose multiple additional rate hikes in the coming months. And the RBA's own research showing that at a 3.6% cash rate, which will hit in a few days, around 15% of all Aussie borrowers will be experiencing negative net cash flows. The record Aussie housing crash that we have forecast since October 2021 is very likely to continue with gusto. On this note, Westpac sensationally revealed that $212 billion of its home loans, or 45% of the total, were advanced assuming interest rates will end up at a lower level than where they will be once the RBA finishes its current hiking cycle. Put differently, Westpac approved loans to borrowers without testing their capacity to service their mortgages at interest rates that were higher than the 25 to 3% additional serviceability buffer that Westpac very reasonably applied at the time. The RBA has already raised rates by 3.35 percentage points, which is obviously more than that buffer. And the market's predicting that they will lift rates by a total of more than 4.25 percentage points by the end of the current hiking cycle. So unfortunately, the outlook for Aussie housing is incredibly grim right now. Now, Chris, let's turn to some of the big ideas that we've been ruminating on right now. And there are a few. Firstly, since January 2022, we have forecast a US and global recession, and our models continue to imply that is likely in late 2023 and early 2024. Central banks are singularly focused on demand destruction and crushing inflation back to their circa 2% targets. They are actively hiking while forecasting recessions in countries like the UK and New Zealand. This is an existential battle for central bank credibility, and we do not think that policymakers are worried about downside economic risks. They have to secure these downside scenarios to in turn deliver price stability. The power put option is well and truly dead. We do not think that a serious recession is priced into risk assets and into equity earnings in particular. Equities have priced in the discount rate changes, but not recessionary risks in our view. Yes, and I think a second big idea is that we believe that illiquidity is creating cognitive dissonance in asset pricing for the time being. With global cash rates rising above 4 to 5%, bank deposits paying 4 to 6%, many highly rated government bonds offering 4 to 5%, and highly rated bank bonds paying as much as 6 to 7% in annual interest, the hurdle rates for all other asset classes have soared. 
Yet valuations in a liquid market have yet to adjust. Here we're particularly focused on residential property, commercial property, private equity, venture capital, infrastructure, high yield or junk bonds, and of course, the private loan or private credit market. If bank bonds are paying 6 to 7% per annum in annual interest with almost zero default risk and strong liquidity, how can one rationally justify allocating to other asset classes trading on inferior yields or those that offer very poor risk premiums? For example, historically, US high-yield bonds with a single B rating have paid a risk premium of 3.5% above triple B rated or investment grade bonds. Yet that annual risk premium is actually below average at just 3%. And what's more worrying is that during default cycles, like the one we're currently in, the risk premium that high yield bonds should pay above investment grade bonds normally rises to 6% or more. There therefore remains a distressing amount of downside risk in the high yield and private loan markets. Something else that we've also been thinking about is that we believe that the global economy is about to be subject to a very serious default cycle. Interest rates have risen by a record margin. Households are carrying record levels of debt. And the economy is about to go into recession or sharp retrenchment. And scores of businesses and families had predicated their finances on the assumption of the low rates for long paradigm persisting. We now face the spectre of high rates for a very long time. Central banks are scarred by missing this inflation crisis, which was fueled as much by excess demand as supply-side frictions. While they should pause this year, there is real risk that there is a second phase to this hiking cycle if core inflation rates do not promptly move back to their 2% targets. Markets are not pricing in any possibility of a second phase to this monetary cycle. They universally assume rates peak this year and then drift lower. When central banks do come to cutting, they will be slow and eager to avoid overstimulating again. None of them know where the true normal or neutral cash rate is, and they will be careful as they approach it. Most central banks do not expect to cut until 2024 or 2025, and the cuts may be modest when they come. Our systems show that the share of listed companies that don't have sufficient profits to pay the interest bill on their debts almost doubled in the US, UK, Europe, and Australia over the last decade. And this is based on FY21 financial data, before rates actually started rising. These zombie companies will be wiped out. That is what the central banks want. They are actively seeking job losses, higher unemployment, lower wage growth, and the demand destruction required to get inflation under control. That's right, Ying Yi. Since the GFC and the advent of the idea that there was no alternative, or TINA, and the corollary of a never-ending search for yield, Many business models and asset classes started predicating their existence on the persistence of uber-cheap money. The pervasive search for yield saw, for example, incredible demand for income-rich equities, commercial property, high-yield debt, and private loans. In the period after 2008, this dynamic was amplified by global regulators forcing banks to reduce lending to the sectors that had historically accounted for huge balance sheet problems and bank blow-ups. Regulators made it increasingly difficult for banks to provide finance to, for example, residential property developers commercial property owners, and zombie-like companies. This so-called subprime corporate finance shifted into the rapidly growing non-bank sector, which importantly sits completely outside of the regulatory and supervisory net. And these non-bank markets are represented most visibly by the high-yield bond market, the private loan market, and the crypto and crypto lending industries. Investors wanted yield or the allure of supernormal returns above near-zero cash rates. Asset managers want to accumulate endless amounts of capital to lend.
them. And borrowers wanted crazy cheap money. The huge growth in high-yield issuance, private credit lending, and crypto finance, outside of the reach of conventional bank regulators, was perfectly fine for as long as credit default risks remained contained. This in turn required interest rates to stay low for very long. In fact, as I remember my mum's own portfolio. Well, I've never been a fan of non-bank lenders, which in our view have consistently inferior lending standards compared with large traditional banks. My own mother was searching for a very high income yield. And so she had allocated up to 45% of her portfolio to private credit. In late 2021, when cash rates were at zero, long-term government bond yields were at about 1%, I nevertheless instructed her financial advisor to liquidate all of her private credit exposures because I was deeply concerned about our forecasts for a huge increase in interest rates and an inevitable default cycle. And I think she had exposures to about 12 different private credit strategies. I was told that they were pretty well diversified. But when I asked the advisors to send me the fact sheets on the strategies, every single one was chock-a-block full of lending against real estate, specifically residential developers and commercial property. Precisely the sectors that APRA, the banking regulator, has for decades argued is the biggest driver of bank blowups. So Chris, that ultra-low interest rate and commensurately low default rate cycle has now turned. Lenders will not want to acknowledge loans going into formal default and will be desperately restructuring them to extend terms, reduce interest repayments and or swap debt for equity in the name of not having to report defaults and or foreclose. But one way or another, a massive default and restructuring cycle is utterly inevitable. And in contrast to every other shock since the GFC when risky borrowers were bailed out by zero interest rates and endless money printing, this time around many will face insolvency. The history of the financial world teaches us two key lessons from every single crisis. The first is that most of the non-banks die. And secondly, the banking system has to be backed by government guarantees and the availability of central bank loans and liquidity. What makes this very different to the GFC is that in this episode, the credit risks have shifted out of the banking system, which has aggressively delevered and de-risked since 2008 into the non-bank domain. Yeah, yes. And another big idea we have is we think the dramatic increase in yields on liquid and high-grade bonds will see an ineluctable shift of asset allocation away from equities, property, infrastructure, and high-risk debt back to conventional liquid and highly rated fixed income. We're already seeing this in record book builds for new bond issues. And this process will be amplified by the regime change for divine benefit pension funds globally, which for decades have run large funding gaps or deficits. These funding deficits have recently transformed into surpluses as a result of the striking spike in interest rates, which has in turn slashed the present value of their liabilities. When previously defined benefit pension funds in Australia, the US, UK, Europe and Asia faced these enormous funding gaps, they were forced into chasing risk or yield to try to close the gaps via allocations to public and private equities and other AC sectors like commercial property and high yield loans. But with a sudden emergence of funding surpluses, they're looking to lock in these windfalls by reallocating back to high grade bonds, paying elevated fixed interest rates. Consistent with this, we are seeing an unprecedented, at least in recent historical terms, increase in the demand for fixed rate as opposed to floating rate bonds. It's possible that these fixed rate yield buys could in turn compress credit spreads sharply for as long as the overall yields on the bonds remain high and alternative investments fail to compete in risk, return and liquidity terms. This has been evident in recent fixed rate bond transactions that have experienced enormous spread compression because they continue to pay attractive total yields. And Chris, the final idea is don't expect the classic post-GFC boom in asset prices once the correction has passed. After every shock since 2008, central banks floored rates and ran QE to infinity. They could only do this as long as inflation remained very low. 
This time around, the structure of interest rates is fundamentally shifting higher. Central banks are all revising their estimates of both the Nairu and the neutral cash rate back up to more normal levels after experimenting with the idea that Nairus had fallen and neutral cash rates might be much lower than they have been in the past. It's possible that we will see this unwind some of the shifts in portfolio construction and asset allocation that flowed from the secular decline in interest rates and the advent of very benign price stability since the adoption of inflation targets in the early 1990s, i.e. the huge equity and illiquid assets binge over the 1990s and 2000s. High-grade bonds are likely to become much more fashionable again. The risk is that central banks struggle to get inflation rates back to their circa 2% policy targets and have to precipitate very deep economic downturns in order to secure their goal of price stability. This is likely to be bad for all asset classes except cash and very high-grade fixed income. Asset prices have to adjust permanently lower in response to permanently higher discount rates and potentially a period of permanently lower growth as household and business balance sheets deleverage leverage further. Rather than the big post-GFC bounce that many have hoped for when they buy the dip, you're likely better off selling the rip when we get these bear market rallies until you're sure that asset prices have properly adjusted. Yeah, and as we set up Cooler Bar in 2011 to specialise in running so-called zero-duration or floating rate strategies that would outperform during a rising interest rate climate. We did this because we believe that the emergent policy reflexes at the time of zero rates in QE to infinity would eventually propagate a very big inflation shock which would prevent central banks from lowering rates and or printing money. It turned out that we needed a supply shock to initiate the demand shock that gave us the biggest inflation crisis in 40 years. But a key insight at the time was that cash and high-grade floating rate bonds were actually one of your best inflation hedges when you have an inflation-targeting central bank. As inflation rates rise, cash rates rise, and the central bank is targeting a positive real risk-free rate or a cash rate that's providing a return over core inflation. I remember in our early presentations between the RBA's cash rate and true mean core inflation, which was north of 70%. Of course, we now run one long-duration strategy in the form of our active composite bond fund, or FIXD, in ETF format via GIX. Having been super negative on duration, in late 2021, we're much more constructive on fixed rate exposures, given the three to 400 basis point increase. Ying, I want to finish off with just some closing thoughts on why the RBA needs a massive overhaul. But before I do so, uh, and as a temporary and perhaps unexpected aside, I want to give a shout out to the UFC's pound for pound king, Alex Volkanovsky, who I recently interviewed in an AFR column, for retaining his number one position across all weight classes following his fight in Perth with Islam Makayachev. I'm confident that Alex, the UFC's featherweight champion, who hails from the mean streets of Wollongong and only started training for the first time in mixed martial arts at age 22, will comfortably prevail over the Dagestani in their rematch and finally and belatedly claim his deserved double champ status. Now let me move on to another cage match, that is RBA Governor Phil Lowe's battle with the rest of the world. Now to be frank, this really is a sad situation that I'm honestly at pains to talk about and I've consciously avoided doing so for some time. For the record, it's worth making a few preliminary points. The RBA is equipped with hundreds of extremely talented analysts that pour a great deal of energy into advancing our understanding of the economy. Phil himself has been an absolute superstar for much of his career and is regarded as extremely honest, diligent and bright and focused on serving the best interests of the people. Nevertheless, for decades, I've argued that the RBA would benefit a great deal from external leadership. Having worked briefly there, the central bank is immensely, and I really mean extraordinarily, hierarchical, insular, supercilious, hubristic, resistant to outside influence and exceptionally slow to recognise and respond to its own mistakes. The RBA's leadership, culture and organisational structures are all desperately in need of a massive overhaul. And this can only be executed by a highly experienced, 
recognized and respected leader that does not originate from the organization itself. So what dynamics created these problems? Well, first you have a circuit two-decade period from the early 1990s to the 2008 global financial crisis, where Australia was blessed with extraordinary productivity, prosperity, and price stability. As a result of the deep 1991 recession, the advent of China flooding export markets with cheap goods, and as a consequence of the booming commodity prices, which was also driven by China. Australia's antipodal position obviously helped, as did the fact that our sleepy banks were simply a few years behind their US and European brethren in aggressively embracing subprime lending. It did not, however, stop Adelaide Bank modelling itself on Northern Rock in investor presentations. Northern Rock, of course, was one of the UK banks that failed. These factors conspired to enable Australia to uniquely avoid a recession during the GFC, and its worst ravages, which in turn encourage bankers, politicians, and policymakers to confuse extreme luck with skill. The myth of Aussie banking and policymaking exceptionalism quickly emerged. Another influence was the 1990s and early 2000s propensity to lionize central bankers like Alan Greenspan as all-knowing and all-seeing monetary profits. The natural human tendency to luxuriate in this acclaim was amplified by the central bank's fixation with their perceived credibility. The idea here was that central bankers wanted their statements about maintaining low inflation to be credible with the public. If they were not, expectations regarding future inflation pressures could become unmoored, resulting in a self-fulfilling bout of even higher actual or realized inflation outcomes. Credibility, however, was confused with an inability to ever admit a mistake. Up until the pandemic, Australia had not had a technical recession since 1991. The RBA had overseen the transformation of what was described during the 1980s as a banana republic into what the economists had repeatedly characterized as the, quote, wonder down under. Almost 30 years of uninterrupted growth combined with inflation almost always at or below the RBA's 2 to 3% target band. But from inside the RBA, it was obvious that this was an incredibly dysfunctional organization riding on the coattails of what was mostly pure providence. The RBA's intense resistance to change, hubris, and insularity has been exacerbated by a governance structure that is largely disemboweled. The board is mostly dominated by individuals who have little expertise in financial markets and or economic policymaking. And the chairman and the CEO of the board are one person, the governor. For decades, the joke was the board was a rubber stamp, although this does appear to have shifted to a much more inclusive and consultative process under the highly amiable and affable low. Another challenge has been the implicit contract that the RBA strikes with the media, whereby it will relentlessly feed favoured journalists with highly sensitive information on their thinking in exchange for compliant coverage. Note that this does not always work, given the rogue rejection of the RBA by its former shadow governor, News Limited's Terry McCran. The final problem is that life as an academic and or economics researcher is exceptionally poor training for life as a hugely pressured decision maker, making uber complex judgments under circumstances characterized by acute uncertainty and duress. Many will argue you need an economist to successfully run the RBA, ideally one with heavy postgraduate qualifications. While these attributes undoubtedly help, the truth is you want someone who has a deep practical understanding of both the economy and financial markets, and crucially an individual who has exceptional experience managing large teams and making complicated decisions decisions under stressful circumstances. If you question for a moment these arguments, consider the enormously successful current boss of the US Federal Reserve, Jay Powell, who studied law and spent his entire career as a lawyer, investment banker, and private equity specialist. He never worked as an economist nor studied advanced degrees in economics. And Powell's frankly run rings around most, though not all global peers in many respects, especially in his belatedly forceful response 
to crushing the biggest inflation crisis the Fed has faced in over 40 years. I personally think it would be a mistake to replace Lowe with someone from the RBA, a former RBA executive, or an individual from the Commonwealth Treasury. It's been 30 years since the RBA has had external leadership, and Bernie Fraser, arguably the best governor the RBA has ever had, was still a highly political Treasury appointment. What we need is a clean slate led by fresh leadership, almost certainly from outside Australia. There are numerous capable candidates that fit this bill. The fact is the RBA's reputational capital has been very deeply damaged with the community. It's peers overseas and most badly with the global bond markets that are ultimately responsible for pricing the cost of capital that it is seeking to influence. I think the Albanese government should work to cauterise this problem as soon as possible, ideally announcing Lowe's replacement promptly after the delivery of the independent review on March 31. There is nothing stopping them putting that person in place within the next few months alongside Lowe as he transitions onto a very well-deserved retirement. Now, that's all, folks. Um, a few other quick comments. First, have a listen, if you have time, to a pretty amazing discussion I had with the Livewire team. It's available over at the Livewire website. I think it's had 25,000 downloads. And I've honestly received more positive feedback on that one interview than any other that I've ever given. Another note is we're going to do something unusual, which is hold a public webinar, i.e. a webinar not just for investors, to discuss the upcoming default cycle. So keep your eyes peeled for those webinar details, which have yet to be published. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast discussion with Yingers, and we look forward to re-engaging with you soon. podcast does not provide financial advice. It is not an invitation to invest in any financial product and the information in it should not be relied on for any decisions. All views expressed represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or a recommendation and should not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit the moneysmart.gov.au website to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.